So how have you been? <laughs> good, good. So I think, uh, wow. I mean, it was the Apple uh, Apple event last week, mm. and uh, the ports I, are back. The ports are back. Everyone's excited about that. I'm not so much. I'm I'm happy. I mean, HDMI is good for hooking up to the TV, maybe, but it's an old spec of HDMI, so you can't even. Well, no, I think that makes sense because you, you know a lot of people are working from home. A lot of people have got external screens. Plug HDMI mm-hmm. straight in. Yeah, but I mean, pro, pros. Let's 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 lean into that naming convention here. Pros, they tend to work with. They're they're pushing four five k now, even six k. Whereas that HDMI, it's the old spec, so it can't. I don't even know if it can push. I think it can push four k at sixty, but it can't push five k or anything above that. Mm-hmm. Which again, pros tend to want. So I'll still be using USB C on that one. Um, SD cards is also an old spec. It's we're pushing now a, another. I don't know SD cards. So mm. If you know it, but that's also an old spec. So yeah, they've given us some ports back, but it's uh, yeah, it's it's old technology as Apple tend to do from time to time. I don't think I'm going back to a, a, a MacBook. I mean, I, I went oh, really? in, well, I went into the city for the first time in 18 months last week. The city, the big city. I know, oh, and I've started calling it I'm going to London, uh, oh, which is really? crazy. Wow, you live in Walthamstow. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> I, I say town. I say I go into town. That's what I say when I'm going. Ah, uh, but that's that, uh, that's a that's a small town mentality from back home, you see. Probably because I would say probably. that. I used to say that when I used to live in Liverpool. I'm going into town, but you know, yeah. here I'm going into the city because it's the but big city. But you're already in the city. But you're yeah. already into the. City. Yeah, I mean, I live in Zone Three at the end of the Victoria Line, so it's not you know it, it is, it's in the city, isn't it? But um, yeah, no, it's still like I'm going to that there London. It's it's a big scary place. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so you went into London. You went to the city, yes. and I took my MacBook with me. Um, which, you know, has battery life that lasts for all of about three hours. Um, but I don't think... I'm certainly not going back to it as my, being my primary computer. I much prefer mm-hmm. work, working on this Mac uh, this Mac Mini, even if it is constantly bouncing off the limit of RAM. But I do mm-hmm. have, like, oh, a thousand windows open, usually Logic. I've got Notion, about five different messaging apps, VS Code <laughs> and several others. So I've got lots of things going. Um, yeah. But I, I still would like a bit more RAM, please, Apple. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I bought one of the new the the new laptops because I was eagerly awaiting it. But I know what you mean about the desktop thing. So I also have the Mac Mini, and I leave it in work, like I leave it in the office. And yes, I am going to an office. Um, it's nice to have that separation. But like you, that RAM isn't enough. I probably don't need that much RAM. I mean, mm-hmm. you don't need that much RAM. You just need to close your bloody windows. But <laughs> um, I, I need a little bit more RAM. Like I'm, I'm quite frugal with my windows and what I have open because I like, I like giving myself a bit of headroom should I need it. But even with like giving myself that headroom, things are sometimes a bit clunky, especially when I've got you know, I mean, I'm just doing a little bit of coding. I wouldn't say front-end development is particularly heavy but you know running running a couple of uh npm things and anyway, i'm getting sidetracked point is i needed that little <laughs> bit extra little bit extra ram so how much ram how power. much ram have you got in the new one then that's coming i got 32 right so the mac mini i've got got 16 and i do think that even the 16 in the new one is an improved 16 i think it's like ddr5 or something mm weird like that i do think if you were to get 16 in the new one it would be better 
don't hold me to that. I don't know. <laughs> well, I'd too like much. to see how it behaves in that MacBook. Um, mm. Because my my other MacBook has 16 as well. It has the Intel chip though, mm-hmm. and I do mm-hmm. think a lot of the energy goes into powering the screen. Um, but here's a, here's a question: Do you th- well, what do you think Steve Jobs would think about the Apple product line as it currently stands? I would. I think he he would say it's too fragmented, mm. and but the part I get it because Tim Cook was a assembly line guy and. Part of the confusion around the new chips is um, because there are so many, but what they're doing, they pro- there should ideally be two chips, the Pro and the Max. But what's happening, in fact, there could even be one chip, but what's happening is when a chip fails in a core, they just switch that core off. So they try and produce a 10 core. If one or two of those fail, they turn it off and sell an eight core. So it's reusing it. And you notice the Mac line, they hang on to a lot of these product lines for a lot longer than they need to. Mm. And so you've got the SE, you've got, which reuses the iPhone 8. You've got the, uh, they still sell the Apple Watch version 3, which is terribly out of date. You can't even install the latest version of uh, watch os i think it's called on the series three because it's so old but he's so adamant of keeping things around for longer reusing shells reusing things not letting things go to waste that it's causing a lot of fragmentation and i think i think steve jobs would would kind of cringe at that because it's in i mean it's good in a way that they're reusing the products in the way that you oh yeah you, you've mentioned you know, eco yeah, because you don't. I, I mean, I don't know how they manage their supply chains and how they deal with all of their stock. But mm. um, the one thing that Steve Jobs did when he rejoined Apple was to kill a load of product lines because there was Strip just too much stuff that was mm-hmm. just dis, you know distributed all over the place. And I don't think they were really serving their customers correct. And I don't think they're doing that now because the pro lines aren't mm. pro enough. Like mm. the fact that they've updated the Mac. Um, uh, the Mac Pro is that? No, I'm getting it wrong now. The iMac, that's the one. Now that they've updated the iMac, but they haven't updated the iMac Pro, mm-hmm. and they haven't given us a Mac Mini with enough RAM to actually use it as a Pro device. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the Mac Pro has been in limbo for ages. Like, it's just not giving like a core customer base is mm-hmm. people who are using it for visual arts, media production, developers, etc. And they're just not mm-hmm. serving that community, I don't think. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're focusing on, like, you know, the fancy, shiny products that, can, that are more consumer-based. But mm. I don't know. I don't know. I, w- I, would, I would say that the, the Mac Pro, the iMac Pro, and the Mac Mini Pro, if it does come out, the Mac Mini has never been a pro machine, although they actually they did release a Mac Mini Pro, didn't they? The Space Gray thing. I would say there's a lot of expectation for that. More expectation for power than the laptops, because everyone knows a laptop is, is not going to be a powerhouse, but it is amazing what they can do with them nowadays. So you can see the trajectory of like efficiency transition to this balance of efficiency and power and then the desktops which are not going to run off battery that's going to be all power and apple are developing their own chips so they can't do everything all at once so i can i can definitely see that trajectory but someone like yourself i think i think they can whack in some of the, the the laptop chips and things like that and something like a mac mini and i think that would start to look like a pro but 
maybe they just haven't nailed it yet. Maybe that maybe it's a mm. lot harder than we give them credit for of of, of giving building a, a just a powerhouse of a chip that doesn't give a crap about efficiency because it hasn't got a battery to think about you know so i don't know i sort of see it from that perspective as well i'm worried about the price point it would come in at as well <laughs> mm, probably be huge. yeah well theoretically it should be cheaper because it's in-house they haven't got to pay any suppliers or well they've they pay less suppliers um and there's no peripherals to a to a mac mini really you know that's what do you mean there's no peripherals? Oh, what you mean like you're just buying a box, aren't you? You know, you're not you, you don't have a screen in it, you don't have a no, keyboard, exactly, you know, yeah. it's, it's just a it's a box. Yeah. I do like the Mac Mini. I was pleasantly surprised and like I said, I did like that separation of like, right, that's the work machine. Leave that there and when I go home, very rarely do I, you know, transition onto a laptop or or whatever. So but anyway, so we we wait and we shall see how your uh, MacBook Pro performs. <clears throat> yeah, look forward yeah, to an update. We'll see. Twenty uh, November twelfth or something is coming, but I think we should probably transition on to who we have on the show today. Who do we have on the show today? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> on the show today, um, as part of our Norwegian Techie series, we have another great Norwegian Techie, Magnus Sven. So you might know Magna as uh, the Emacs Rocks guy, and you can find his content at emacsrocks.com, where he's been hosting webcasts on tips and tricks of Emacs since 2011. But that's not all. He's also a big fan of functional programming, in particular Clojure and Clojure Script. And on his other site, Parents of the Dead, you'll find screencasts that will teach you how to build a zombie game with functional programming. So we'll get into all of that. Um, so expect plenty of talk about text editors and functional programming coming up. Hello, my name is Magnar Sven and I work at Kodemaker, uh, which is a small consultancy here in Oslo. If any of your listeners know of me already, that's probably from Emacs Rocks, uh, which is a screencast about how there's this one particular editor, text editor that's pretty neat. I've also got quite a few open source projects under my belt. Uh, so I know a thing about open source fatigue. I've done some more screencasts like Parents of the Dead, uh, where I use Clojure and Clojure Script to make a game from scratch. So uh, I'm a big fan of functional programming and Lisps. And I've been working with uh, Clojure for the last eight years professionally. And in my free time, I enjoy playing board games and writing on my Norwegian text adventure game that's 25 years in the making. <laughs> that's incredible. Did you make that game? Yeah. I wrote it in Amos on the Amiga uh, 25 years ago. I was smart enough to have the content of the game in text files so I could port it to PC and Mac and everything uh, over the years. Amazing. What was it called? It's called... Oh, it's Norwegian, isn't it? So it's going to have... It's, yeah, it's Norwegian. <laughs> Can you just send us a link? <laughs> <laughs> the name The name is quite funny because um, it's Adventure Deluxe, except that it's spelled wrong. It doesn't have the E's at the end, so it's just Adventure, uh, which is because I was manually drawing the icon on the Amiga 
and I didn't have enough pixels in the icon to write adventure. So it just got adventure and then I didn't have any more room. And it's very popular these days to drop the E's from your, uh, your company name or your game or whatever. Yeah, it's very cool. Yeah, it was way before my time there. You're ahead of the curve. Yeah. <laughs> Writing a text adventure game. <laughs> Sweet. Well, I'm curious to dip right into the Emacs stuff as it... I mean, is it Emacs? 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 I think it's Emacs. You're not an Emacs guy then, are you, Sam? No, of course not. <laughs> this is why this is why I'm going to be talking much. But uh, you mentioned it was a text editor, is it? Yeah. And so what's the fascination with a text editor? Like, where did that stem from? Well, as since I'm mainly working in a text editor eight hours a day, I think that's like the main source. Uh, but I always enjoyed tinkering with my tools. Uh, and uh, Emacs is the ultimate tool to tinker with since it's uh, infinitely malleable i have an example uh, about uh, imagine you have a text editor and you want to implement multiple cursors that would make no sense in intellij or <laughs> textmate or unless they already have it of course but in emacs i actually wrote the multiple cursors package so my my package for emacs actually simulates the core command loop of the editor, right? adding multiple cursors to your screen. So it's uh, quite, uh, you can do pretty much anything, uh, writing software for your editor in, in Emacs. So that's pretty cool. So what's the advantage of having multiple cursors? Because I think that's quite intriguing to start with. Well, uh, <laughs> sometimes uh, you have code that's repeated some patterns, you know, and you just want to add, uh, change your some text files or editing the name of se the same thing several places in your buffer. Oh, I get what you mean. So you, you, you're talking about, you know, looking for, for similarities in the code and editing or like variable names for something, or something yeah. like that. Right. That makes much more sense. I had this, I think because it's early in the morning that we're recording this, I had this image of like mouse cursors flying across the screen, which would be inherently impractical. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> but that makes that makes sense, though, because that's quite a common feature in like most modern IDEs and things, isn't it, to have that sort of multiple cursors for, you know, variables and stuff like that. So you wrote the package for that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So the the cool thing is that it's was it was possible to add without being part of the core team developing Emacs. It was just a package on top of everything else. So, uh, so Emacs just is like a very tiny core of C, C code, and then the rest of it is written in Emacs Lisp, including the command that inserts the keys that you're typing. When you're pressing keys to write, the command that's being run is the self-insert command, and that is also written in Lisp, which is pretty neat. <laughs> I think it sounds like a very basic feature of an of an editor. Well, I think this is, I mean, I think that I think text editors are really interesting, but obviously for listeners like Sam, who don't even know what Emacs is. Hey. Um, I, <laughs> well, you just said it. Um, the, let's get into a little bit more detail about what these things are, though, because I've uh, used quite extensively things like uh, Vim. And I think there's often Vim versus Emacs. And these are generally the text editors that ship in your terminal. You know, they're available right there. So if you're writing, you know, uh, command lines in Linux or, or Mac or um, 
well, let's just leave Windows for now, shall we? Um, <laughs> then you have the ability to jump in and edit a text file right there and there without leaving your terminal. And that's what the sort of purpose is, I suppose, for th things like Emacs and for uh, for Vim. And then obviously you can expand on those and turn them into other things. Now, the, I, I went down a route of using Vim because the people that were around me were using Vim, you know, and, and people weren't using Emacs. But there's definitely... Um, it seems like there's a little bit of a war out there between Emacs and Vim. Is that is that true? Is that fair to say? You've got people that are in one camp or the other. I think there. I, I don't remember who said it, but uh, you can't you can't implement Emacs in Vim, but you can implement Vim in Emacs, and that's actually what's happened. So I have quite a few colleagues who love Vim that are now using Emacs with the Vim modes. So that you get the the very ergonomic key bindings and so on, but you still have the extensibility of Emacs. So I, I think uh, there's been sort of a, an assimilation going on there. Uh, I'm not sure the war is as fierce as it was f 10 years ago. Yeah, I think it definitely used to be though, didn't it? I mean, I think that's really interesting though that you're saying that you can actually implement Vim within Emacs. Because I suppose it is the key bindings of things that are the, the strongest thing for for something like Vim. Do you, and I suppose you have the ability to. Well, you're talking about the packages being able to create sort of sidebars and uh, you know additional terminal windows and all those sort of things you can create within Emacs. I presume you can do you can do that. Mm -hmm. It's quite an extensible editor. Even Emacs has one of my favorite facts about Emacs is that it has implemented in it the solar the movement of the solar system in order to give you a precise uh, sunrise and sundown and calendar. That's incredible. Just from maths. So it's <laughs> how does that transpire as a feature for a user? Because <laughs> it's a cool trick, but what does that actually uh, what does that actually do? I think the reason is Emacs has been used in like scientific communities for 30 years. So so it's just grown naturally from that. The people who wrote that code actually wrote the book on it as well. So they are like professors. But yeah, the feature you get as an Emacs user is that your calendar will always be up to date, <laughs> regardless of your OS, I guess. That's pretty cool. So do you find yourself then not using any other IDEs then you're you're firmly rooted in Emacs on a day-to-day -day basis then you're not you're not trying out Visual Studio Code or anything like that? I don't think I have any need for testing out the other editors apart from uh, stealing ideas to implement into my my own. It's very comfy. It's a very comfy place to be. But there is one very particular use case where I would not use Emacs, and that is writing Java code. And uh, that's because when you're writing Java code, you have to have the crutches of your IDE. Otherwise, it gets very tedious very fast. Yes, I would agree, <laughs> having written some Java code recently. <laughs> yeah, but I do try to avoid that. So I haven't been writing Java code since, well, 2012, maybe. And so is this where you're spending most of your time in Clojure and things like that? Yeah. Yeah, I've been, people have been paying me to write Clojure code since 2013, so I'm quite happy about that. Do you think it's hard to leave that Emacs world once you've, once you've got as far down the, the road as you have? Yeah, probably, because you get used to, the, used to having everything your own way. Mm. And <laughs> if there were like company mandates, 
going down. Now everyone has to use IntelliJ because we want to increase collaboration and reduce license costs. Well, Emacs, of course, having no license costs, uh, but uh, there is a problem if you want to pair program at the same keyboard. I would use Emacs and the other person will use IntelliJ. But um, yeah, that's not, it hasn't been a problem for many years, thankfully. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point, though, of you know organizations that are trying to standardize, let's say, on a, a particular uh, IDE. And and I think you know when you talk about something like Emacs or you know people who have a similar setup with Vim and Tmux and all those sort of things, that's probably a lack of understanding a, a senior level potentially that people are going to be comfortable in environments like Emacs and Vim where to your point it's a comfy environment because you've you've customized it you've got it to be how you want to work you know you've you've customized your tools it's like i suppose like being a carpenter where you've got all of your tools around you and then you're being asked to work in a in a workshop that's got a limited set of tools available to you and you're expected to churn out uh, furniture of the same standard Do you know it would be something like that yeah so i think that i think that's a really interesting point for anyone who is listening who's in that position where they're, they're looking for almost standardization. I think it's really interesting that some things should be standardized maybe within a business and some things certainly shouldn't. The IDE one's a really poignant point though as to whether you should try and standardize that across your organization or not. Because I think the paired programming is a, is a really important point, but you know, ultimately you want the developers within an organization to be as, um, as comfortable as possible with what it, whatever it is they're working in, I guess. I, I agree with that point, and it's um, it was actually pure program that brought me into Emacs. I was using TextMate at the time, and my friend Christian Johansen, uh, he um, he said, "No, I'm not doing that. Let's just use <laughs> Emacs." And I started learning Emacs. So uh, within a week, I was totally obsessed with it, and um, we had this um, morning ritual where he had his coffee and I had my water. And uh, we shared what we've learned about Emacs since the last day, uh, because I spent my evenings reading up on everything about Emacs and blog posts and reading the source code and everything to find like cool tricks that we could use in our day-to-day -day work. So that was a really uh, fun time. But then he was taken out of the project for two weeks and I had no one to share it with. So I came in the, in the morning and I couldn't show anyone the cool things that I had found. And that's how I started Emacs Rocks, uh, the, the video cast, because I just had to share with someone. <laughs> just wanted someone to talk to. Um, so, uh, yeah. So what is Emacs Rocks then? This is a screencast you've been, you've been running? Yeah. And I've been running it and abandoning it mainly. So in 2012, 13, I did quite a few episodes in Emacs Rocks and it was quite popular. It's because it's a very nice format. It's just two minutes long videos showing one trick. No clicking, like and subscribe and ring the bell and hello and yeah, just <laughs> straight into the tricks, just showing us something cool. So it's a very positive, enthusiastic format. And uh, it was, I've gotten lots of requests afterwards to continue doing them. And I would, if I could like muster the same enthusiasm. And, but the problem is I've become, what's the word, blasé 
I'm not sure. It's I've it's comfortable now. It's not amazing anymore because I've I'm used to it. It's still very very good, and I'm very happy that I'm using it. It's just that I don't scream in joy. I couldn't be doing that for like nine years in a row. So some of the last episodes I'm not so happy with because they're they feel to me a little bit forced, and so I just stopped doing them. You you may be running out of steam with it a little bit, but this is a still a great resource for anyone who wants to go and check out some cool stuff with an Emacs. I'm I'm certainly going to go through more of the episodes after this show as well, just uh, in case Vim isn't installed in the future. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's interesting, actually, that you mentioned before about like within a week you were up and running with Emacs because I think after a week I could exit Vim. I think that was about. Uh... <laughs> is, is sorry, I'm going to be the the silly person here. So, is Emacs installed on my Mac right now, or is it something that I need to install? Yeah, it's installed for you, so I can play with it right now. Yep. Mm. So that's what you get to play with this afternoon, Sam. And. Uh... Good luck exiting that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How do I, uh, how I exit? That's uh, I the first it, rule. Uh, of... It's control X, control C. The, the, this is the level of tests that we need in programming interviews. Okay, here's a text editor. Now exit it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we need to go in with the end in mind. I think that's the, that's the true test of that thing. So before I enter, how do I exit? You pass the test. That's what it is. You spend a lot of your time in Clojure. I'm wondering, is Emacs, does it lend itself better to certain languages or because I'm a front-end developer, I want to write some JavaScript, is this something that I need to install or package I need to download to get that syntax highlighting? Do I need to extend it to work with different languages or is it right out of the box working with hundreds of different languages? Yeah, both of those. It, it does work out of the box with c- certainly JavaScript, but uh, lots of languages. But then there are thousands and thousands of other packages that you might want. I actually, many years ago, wrote uh, the JS refactor package for Emacs, which in- introduces like renaming var- vars and introducing parameters to functions and so on. Yeah, but um, you get the syntax highlighting. That's pretty... Uh, that's pretty neat. But there are, to answer your question about Emacs is certainly better for some languages than others. Like I said, I, even I wouldn't write Java in Emacs. Uh, but if Lisps are particularly well suited for Emacs since Emacs is built on a Lisp, the Emacs Lisp. Um, so it has excellent editing tools for for writing the paren in the wrong place. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so, and I also had a thought: the predictive, uh, the t- predictive typing technology with um, with GitHub. Uh, what was it, what was it called? Copilot. Copilot. Yeah. Um, are there any extensions with regards to new technologies like that working its way into Emacs, or is that something that's a bit too automated for? The, the core or the foundation or ethos of something like Emacs? Well, uh, well me personally, I, uh, I, I've become an old grump. So I think things like that are newfangled nonsense and I shake my fist into the sky. 
<laughs> but but it's uh, as long as it has an API, you can easily integrate it into your editor with Emacs. But you most probably have to do it yourself. There might be people working on it, of course. There's uh, always new packages being released. But the thing I like the most is, well, let's go back to my text adventure. I've written my own text adventure mode for Emacs, <laughs> which uh, has IntelliSense uh, and auto completions and uh, navigation tools, like jump to definition, you know? All of those things I've written into my editor. And I, I used, this is a trick that I use, not daily, but every, at least every month, where I have some menial task or some uh, boring uh, thing that I have to do in my editor, and I instead write just write some code for it. The last uh, the last thing I wrote was uh, a coworker asked if there was a jump to the last change I did, like they had navigated a little bit around and wanted to go back to where they last changed something, and Emacs didn't have that, so I wrote it in like ten minutes, and uh, then you had it. So that's the idea. You just add whatever you need at the time. And it can be very specific. It doesn't have to be so generic that it's useful for everybody. It can be useful for just you, just today. And that's fine. You said earlier, Chris, uh, you're like a carpenter being asked to use a set of tools that you're not familiar with. That got me thinking about something someone else said, and that is blacksmiths and coders are the only people also build their own tools. Well, it's, it's true. And, you know, a carpenter would do the same sort of thing. You build a jig, you know, you're going to do this 10 times. Well, you make a jig for it, you know. So uh, so if you're a developer and uh, you're not building your own tools, what are you missing? Think about that. Mm. Well, that was going to lead into my next question, which was going to be, is there anything that you're wanting in Emacs that you haven't got quite got around to implementing or writing yourself or the community? When I... Uh, went from uh, IntelliJ and TextMate to Emacs, I had a quite a few of those. And then I built those things, like multiple cursors, and uh, my other package, Expand Region, which is uh, from IntelliJ, where you uh, select the word, and then you expand that selection to include a whole sentence or the entire expression. Yeah, I, I really needed that. So I, so I wrote that as well. And after that, I've just been like, wallowing in my own uh, uh, happiness it it just works for me uh, I'm, I'm not i'm not spending very much time thinking about it anymore yeah and so all these things uh you know emacs i think there's a foundation to this which is probably lisp which you've mentioned a couple of times so emacs is built in lisp closure is based on well actually according to uh, to what i'm reading it says that closure is a dialect of lisp is that, is that the right way the right terminology for it or it's built on it yeah there's um there are quite a few like points that you that all lisps have in common so yeah closure is certainly a, a lisp but it's um it has a bit more syntax than the strictest lisps yeah, well, tell. I mean, you know, I presume that you got into the the Lisp world through Emacs. That would seem like the logical route. Is is that right, or did you do you come by it from some other direction? For some weird reason, I learned about Clojure and Emacs separately at around the same time. So, so the the fact that they are both Lisps Lisp based uh, 
didn't really have anything to do with it. I had I had to write in Emacs because my my coworker didn't want to write in <laughs> write in anything else, and uh, I saw Stuart Sierra uh, holding a. a uh, what's it called? A presentation? Yeah, presentation about closure uh, in a conference in Norway, and I really, I was re- very primed for what he had to say. I was uh, at the time trying to make JavaScript be a very functional programming language, and it wasn't really working very well. I was sort of pushing the boundaries on what JavaScript was able to do functionally uh, without being very slow, for instance. And um, Clojure had the answers to all of those problems that I was experiencing. So what led you, led you down the route of wanting to try and get more function, uh, functional programming out of JavaScript? What, what, was, what was your goal there? What were you trying to achieve? Well, I had been working for several years with jQuery. And uh, the thing you do with jQuery, at least then, uh, was that you have some HTML in your in your document, and then you start patching the HTML. Well, you're using your jQuery selectors, and you're adding elements, and removing elements, and changing text, and upgrading styles. Trying to make interactive websites by performing random patching with your code. That was and still is very uh, prone for bugs. You've like you have a counter on your web page. Let's let's take the GitHub UI. When you have a pull request in the GitHub UI, it says on the tab, it says for open pull requests. And then you merge and close the pull request and everything changes, like the pull request changes uh, to closed, but it still says for open pull requests in the tab. And why is that? Why, why isn't it now three? I just closed this pull request. And that's, of course, because they're just patching their UI when you close it. And they, they didn't remember to fix it, or they're not sure if there's still four or three because they would have to ask the server how many there were and so on. So that's uh, the, the base idea of React that came a few years later is you have like this data about what's on the page, and then you have the rendering which is separate from the data and uh, you you don't manually patch every piece of html you just let react do that for you from the data and some rendering functions so that was pretty much what i was trying to do a few years earlier without react without the the key to solving that problem which was the shadow dom in react i was writing my uh, views uh, with functions, but replacing the entire DOM, you know, which is expensive and slow. So, but I, I didn't want to work like the jQuery way anymore. Okay, so that was what led you to 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 going down the functional route. And then when you found Closure, how how did Closure solve that problem for you? Then there are quite a few things, and we can go into them. But like an example would be when you have a for loop, you're, you're performing a map, you're looping through an array and you're performing like a function on all the elements in the array, for instance, up, uppercase. Then if you want to also filter, you, you, you're familiar with map and filter because they are in the JavaScript 
the new JavaScript. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, the new newer versions of JavaScript. The yeah. new version of JavaScript has map and filter. Um, but uh, if you want to if you want to do both a map and a filter on an array, it would be faster to do a for for a loop, because the map walks through the entire array doing some things, and then the filter walks through the array doing some things. And if you want to like do more of those, every single step will have to walk through the entire array over and over and over. Uh, while a for loop, which can be written to do all of those things at the same time. In Clojure, there's something called a lazy sequence. Meaning when I apply a map to the sequence, it doesn't actually map it right now. And then when I apply a filter to the sequence, it doesn't filter it right now. It doesn't map or filter until you're asking for the data. So it's instead of eagerly mapping and eagerly filtering and so on, it will wait until you're asking for the data. And that means it can do all the operations that you want on the data structure uh, without adding any overhead. Do you think that enables better programming then to a certain degree? Because when you're talking about map and filter, you know, I think you, you see, or people use map and filter quite, um, trying to think of a different word other than eagerly, like you said, people will quite, quite uh, happily just use map and filter, probably without realizing necessarily the impact that it's going to have on memory usage or speed, especially because JavaScript, you know, is a language that pretty much anyone can write. And most people who are writing it, I think probably haven't got a computer science degree, they've probably learned it some other way. I would imagine, based off what you've just told me about about that lazy um, lazy looping, essentially, or la uh, what, what the terminology was that you said. Lazy sequences. That feels like it almost solves the problem without you having to know too much about memory. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, but to be fair, uh, I was writing for Internet Explorer 6. <laughs> so the JavaScript engines are several orders of magnitude faster these days. So I'm, I'm sure most people can use map and filter without feeling too bad about it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that's kind of, that's kind of my point. If you, you know, if you haven't, uh, if you weren't trying to do this on Internet Explorer 6, or you haven't come from a computer science background, you're probably not aware of the impact that it's having on memory to a certain, unless you're, you know, working at a firm that requires massive processing power or has, you know, hundreds of thousands of transactions a second or something like that, you probably you probably don't need to worry about it. Um, but when it comes to something that has to be performant, that sounds like closure is probably out of the box, better tuned for performance. Would that, is that true? I think if you're after raw performance, you're still probably just want to write JavaScript or WebAssembly or something. But, uh, we were now talking about how I came into into it, but I don't think those are the reasons I, I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> so why did you stick around then? <laughs> um, I think the most important part about uh, functional programming and uh, closure for me is the concept of pure functions. Are you familiar with the concept of pure functions? I think let's elaborate for the listeners. Yeah. Uh, a pure function is one that operates only on the parameters it's given and doesn't do anything else than return something. So it doesn't have any side effects. 
in that it doesn't write something to disk or change some object elsewhere or access the database or do anything like that. It's given some parameters and uh, it does the work given the parameters it's got and returns something. That doesn't sound very impressive. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, um, the, the fact is, if you're trying to like expand how many pure functions you're using in your code until there's quite a lot of them, like 80% of your code is pure functions, then something magical happens. Because since you can no longer willy-nilly change stuff elsewhere, like you know, if, if, I'm, if I'm reading a function, I know that there's not database access going on. I know that people aren't writing stuff to uh, elsewhere. So I can read the function as is. I can just look at the code that's right there in front of me and understand what I'm looking at right now and get all of that other stuff out of my head. And it's hard to explain because when I was writing JavaScript code, you have like this gigantic object graph, objects linking other objects, linking to lists that are ever changing. People are pushing and ch changing the arrays, changing the values in the objects. And you have like this, um, well, at least I did, this uncertain feeling. Is this even working? <laughs> what, it, what does this code do? It changes something here, but who looks at that? And if I change something, it might break something else exactly. or whatever. Mm. And, and when you use a pure function, you know it will never change anything else. It will only return something. And when you have lots of lots code like that, lots of code like that, your entire just navigating through the code and understanding the code gets a lot easier. And writing tests, of course. Certainly. Yeah, you don't have any mocks in your tests anymore. With this approach, do you, with, with, with functional approach, do you write a lot of tests or are you strict with TDD or does it become not irrelevant, but, but less important to work TDD? I actually had a Norwegian screencast called Zombie TDD, which was the precursor to Parents of the Dead. So I have quite a lot of experience writing TDD with JavaScript, but I am no longer driving my design with tests. Uh, I can say that. I try to drive my design with thinking <laughs> instead, I think, I guess. But I, I still see a very use, uh, tests are very useful. And I like to sometimes write tests first if I know what I'm building. But I also, I, I'm, no, I'm no longer ashamed to write the tests afterwards, like I was maybe 10 years ago ashamed to write the tests afterwards that's quite an extreme position today <laughs> yeah i think uh mr everyone's favorite uncle bob uh tried to put a lot of shame onto people for for doing that the wrong way <laughs> he did indeed i don't know how many times i've written a bowling game now um <laughs> but <laughs> but um yeah so uh, that's really interesting, though, that you've gone from actually having, you know, a pre well, a zombie screencast on uh, TDD to actually you, you've changed your thinking. What, what was it that changed your thinking around that? I think um, the, the main part is 
you don't necessarily get the best design by letting your tests drive it. But uh, but I like like adding some cases, writing tests like these are some cases I want to cover. But I think uh, one major reason that I'm no longer using TDD is the REPL. Um, the REPL is like the running process, and um, for uh, many many languages have like a REPL-ish experience, but Enclosure is very integrated into. Uh, how the language works and how your editor is set up usually. One part that I really liked about test-driven development was that my code was always running. Uh, I had like a terminal and my code was running, it was green. I was did some changes, it was still green. Did some other changes, now it's red and I fixed that. That loop, I really enjoyed. And the part was I didn't sit for 30 minutes writing code and then trying to run it. <laughs> because uh, w when you're always running your code, you always know why it's wrong. Or at least why it's failing. The code might be wrong for some very other reasons. But if it's failing now and it didn't fail three seconds ago, it, it's not so much has happened since. So that's that was part of the TDD experience for me, having your code being run and run and run and run continuously, always while you were coding. And I still do that. I uh, just send it to the REPL enclosure instead. So I'm always evaluating my code. Right. Because I think, you know, with front-end development, you know, you're, you've constantly got the web page or whatever it is that you're developing open as you're doing the development as well. So you are, you are getting that fast feedback loop generally from, you know, writing your code, seeing how it's performing, et cetera, et cetera, even if you're not building those tests up. So I, th I suppose what you're talking about with REPL is similar in a way. You are actually getting the feedback loop that's important from TDD without actually having written the tests. Yeah, exactly. But I, I still do enjoy a, a good test because uh, I, I make lots of mistakes still. Well, I think the, the other thing as well is as you're getting to have a bigger and bigger program or a bigger and bigger footprint for your code base, you need that if you're working with other people because you need to there's going to be areas of the code that you're less familiar with and you want to make sure that the changes you're making are not breaking things right yeah so the curious thing i've got here is if you are writing smaller and smaller functions in closure are you also suggesting that you probably don't need as much testing to cover those functions because they're having less of an impact potentially across the code base if they are pure functions? Yeah, there's certainly something there. Your code sort of goes from an, a cyclic graph where everything's connected to everything else to like a tree structure. So uh, when, I'm, when I'm asking how does this endpoint work if I'm working on the backend, I can navigate down through the code via pure functions all the way and pinpoint exactly which code is running. There's not something else somewhere else interfering with it at all. It doesn't work because there's a singleton over there or because there's a been done a schema migration in the database. It works just plainly on the code as here. And uh, yeah, so you get lots fewer timing issues, lots fewer uh, stateful 
this other object has to be set up properly for this code to work. It's just read the code that's there and that's it. So I can uh, do changes without worrying so much about breaking something else that I didn't think about. Do you think that is, um, I mean, is that just a function of functional programming in general, or do you think that closure particularly lends itself to this sort of way of working? I think there's uh, one other trick that Clojure has in its book to make this particularly useful, and that is immutable data structures. I would argue that you can't really have pure functions without immutable data structures. Because if I write a pure function in JavaScript that uses uh, an object or uh, an array, those can change on me. I can get an, someone else can add some properties or change some properties on my object. Someone else can add or remove stuff from my list under my feet. With immutable data, once I get a hold of that data, it will never change. That might sound weird. How does anything ever change then? <laughs> <laughs> that was going to be my next question. Yeah. So if you've, got, if you've got immutable data, data that doesn't change, what do you do with that next then? <laughs> exactly. And I have a very good uh, example for you. And th those are strings. Because strings are immutable in almost every programming language. Uh, so you already know how to work with immutable data. Because when you're changing a string, you're not expecting the original string to change. You're expecting to build on that string somehow. You get a new string back once you change it, right? So uh, every almost every programmer knows very well how to work with immutable data. You always, you always get a new one back. If I have an object with a string inside it, that changes, right? So I can access the string inside and take it out. And now the string is mine. No one can change it. But if I access the object again later, trying to get the same string, it might have changed. Someone might have changed the reference in the object. So uh, immutable data structures in Clojure work the same way as strings do in almost all other languages. In that once, if I want to add a new key to my map, I get a new map back with the key added. If I want to add some items to a list, I get a new list back with the items added. So I think one question on top of that is what happens to the other data? You have string A, you make a change to string A, you now have string B. What happened to string A? Is it still there? And are we going to end up once we've changed string B, we've changed it to C, and then you know eventually we've got an alphabet of strings. How do we deal with the, with the sort of the garbage collection of that, the fact that we're now getting uh, you know, a, 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 an ever-growing data structure for the lifetime of the program? Yeah, um, you, you have, um, that's a good question. And the immutable data structures in Clojure solve that. Well, first of all, it uses the garbage collection in, in Java, but it, it's implemented via uh, references. So it's no, it, it figures out which part of the tree are no longer referenced by anyone, and it throws away that. But if I have a map, an immutable map, and I add something to it, the only thing that's new is the added part. So I know how we'll hold a, a map with a new thing in it and the reference to the other map. So the memory, it doesn't, if you imagine you could do the same thing in JavaScript, but you'd have to use like deep clones. 
which would be very expensive very soon. Okay. Well, from deep clones to things being sort of cut off and then dying, I think that leads us almost neatly into your uh, your zombie themed <laughs> world. Yeah, I was trying. I was trying. Um, so, Parents of the Dead. Talk to us a little bit about that, because again, you've got you know you, you definitely have a zombie theme going throughout the things that you seem to create. But um, but Parents of the Dead is particularly interesting for me. So, talk talk to us about that. Well, um, Parents of the Dead is a screencast of I think like eight episodes where I write a game from scratch using Clojure and Clojure Script. And the idea was uh, just showing how fun and fast you can get stuff done using these tools. And my and the game I'm, I was writing was Memo, which is uh, quite a simple game, of course. It had to be for like eight episodes, but uh, it's timed Memo. It's Memo for adults. You have like 30 seconds to solve the Memo, go. <laughs> and there's zombies in the Memo. For people who haven't played Memo, it's, it's like a grid of squares and then you reveal two at a time and you try to find the same ones but if you don't find the same ones they flip back and you have to remember where each square is right ah so it's a memo short for memory because it's a memory game yeah it's a memory game yeah yeah okay you're looking for pairs (laughs) you're looking for pairs (laughs) Uh, and but in this zombie memo there are zombies that you have to avoid so you don't want to pair up the zombies because then you'll lose more time Okay, cool. But yeah, uh, the the idea was how fast can you get stuff done without like using lots of frameworks and let's just write some code and see where it takes us. So how long would it take you to go through this and write it from scratch? If, I, if I'm new to Clojure, uh, I'm new to Memo. Uh, how long is it going to take me to, uh, to do this? Is it, are they, how long are the episodes? The episodes are 50 minutes each, so you, that would be two hours. And that would be false advertising saying it would take two hours to do. <laughs> because uh, first of all, I had done it before and I practiced quite a few times before I made this, this screenshot show. And there's no CSS work in it, which is almost as much time just making the CSS as making the code work in my experience. But I guess from that, then, you could probably spend a day and by the end of it, you would have a zombie memo game. Yeah, probably. How, how much of a taster is that going to give me of closure? Like, is there going to be stuff that I'm going to be missing, you know, fundamentally? Or am I going to be excited and wanting to start again or not start again, carry on with this? Um, you know, where, where am I Where am I going to be at once I've completed Parents of the Dead? I think you would uh, have a, a taste of it but the problem for me with closure and learning is that it takes forever uh, not to learn the language but to learn why it's built the way it is so you're saying you never really get closure yeah <laughs> <laughs> i think you're I, I think you're thinking about google closure which is a totally different product <laughs> I think I've been working professionally with Clojure since 2013, and I'm still sort of internalizing the ideas behind it, the the value proposition that the language uh, brings to the table, because it's it's very well founded and uh, but but odd. If you if you come from object-oriented languages like Java or JavaScript, and try to like grok 
disclosure, it will take some time. I, I, I'm really gonna, I'm gonna do this parents of the dead. I'm gonna set myself a challenge this weekend to go through it. I'm really, really interested in it. I wish I asked this question earlier, but you, you've compared closure to JavaScript quite quite a number of times and you even mentioned java and obviously these are very different languages for very two very different purposes does closure compile down to javascript i'm struggling to understand how you would write something you know in javascript something traditionally like um a website how closure kind of fits into all that yeah i can talk about that a bit um, closure is a hosted language in that it doesn't have its own runtime so if you run Clojure on the back end, you usually run it on the JVM. So this brings something very neat to the table, which is that you can use any Java library from Clojure. So when Clojure was released, it didn't have to do all the heavy lifting of like building its own crypto libraries or building its own, you know, all those things that you need when you're using it in the real world. So, uh, so Clojure, basically is compiled to Java classes. And similarly, ClojureScript is compiled to JavaScript. And in particular, and this is uh, confusing, it is compiled to Google Clojure compatible JavaScript because Google has made their Clojure compiler, uh, which uh, is a very effective uh, tool to minimize your JavaScript code. So uh, I've tried writing Google Clojure JavaScript myself, which looks a lot like uh, Java uh, because you have to have types, everything is typed and it's a lot of hassle to write. But when your compiler does it for you, it's very useful because it, it gets very, a lot better minified than like Uglyfy can do because it knows more about your code. It rearranges your code to make it as small as possible. So in this podcast, we've been referring to Clojure and ClojureScript like interchangeably. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, ClojureScript is the front-end version of Clojure. And since they are both hosted languages, they do, uh, they're do they not semantically the same. Uh, when you write ClojureScript, you are writing to, with JavaScript, a JavaScript target in mind. But when you write Clojure, you write with the JVM in mind and have those tools available. The Clojure script users like me loved when React came out because it fits so well the mental model. But the other part was uh, since React tries to compare quite large data structures to figure out which parts have changed, what parts need to be updated in the DOM, the Clojure script data structures are actually better suited than the, jo the JavaScript native objects because they have value semantics in that if they are equal, they will be, uh, well, equal equality means that they are exactly the same as opposed, for, as opposed to JavaScript objects, which are equal only when they have the same reference to the same object, right? So you can quickly determine equality with the closure scripts immutable data structures, meaning that you get faster rendering with the React. And uh, quite a few React users have started using uh, immutable JS and stuff like that to get the performance boost from it. But if you use your script, you just get that for free. 
That's interesting then. So you're using ClojureScript with React. Yeah. With regards to something like TypeScript or ES6, which it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts about those two, which is a language which compiles down to JavaScript. It's helpful to know sort of how that code is then compiled down to the kind of vanilla vanilla code or whatever. First of all, first question is, is it helpful or are you um, in the back of your mind, how is this eventually compiled down to vanilla JavaScript? Or is something you can quite happily write and not really have to be concerned with, with, with how it's going to be compiled down? The second one. Uh, I was quite concerned about that early because I was always, I was always trying to write my JavaScript neatly and optimized. So I used to like, check out how is this being compiled. But after, after some years, I've, uh, I've learned to let that go. It's, uh, it's doing a very good job compiling it. I, I think the TypeScript versus ClojureScript versus CoffeeScript or any other type of script you can think of is a good question though, really, because I, I'm, I mean, I've um, been working on a project recently where I literally actually just deleted TypeScript from the project and went back to pure JavaScript, mostly because the goal was I need to put this together as fast as possible. It's a proof of concept and I've got to collect loads of things together and I don't have time to trawl through the internet, find bits that I'm looking for and then turn them into TypeScript. I actually just want to be able to stick a whole load of stuff together. And I'm curious about like whether you, you know, how, how you approach, you know, building a project using ClojureScript when, you know, a lot of the way that most non-god-like developers work is to co- co- is to do what I've just said and go and collect snippets from across the internet. There must be a lot of um, translation almost that you need to do. Yeah, and I think you find that it also gets lost in translation uh, because it's so different. The, the basic ideas of the languages are so different. Just like the, the regular for loop doing stuff, uh, that's not pure, you know. Uh, because you, the for loop doesn't return anything. The for loop only does stuff to other things. So, uh, so coming from like a, one of those languages and having like your code snippets ready to paste doesn't help you very much, unfortunately. I have done the translation job a few times, usually because there's some algorithm that I don't understand, uh, like figuring out which day is Easter. I'm not sure if you've seen that algorithm. Um, it, it's a quite intricate maths problem <laughs> with lots of con- cons- constants. And uh, I would never be able to write that myself. So I just had to translate it. And it's a finicky job because the syntax is quite different. But yeah, um, copying, and, copying and pasting code snippets from Stack Overflow sort of... Um, stops being the helpful tool that it once was. I don't think you have to be godlike, though. Uh, I think you can get a lot more done if you use simpler tools. Yeah, so, I mean, in that instance, would you suggest that ClojureScript is going to be a simpler tool than TypeScript? Yes, certainly, um, for, for many reasons. But the most important reason is that it's a simpler mental model. You have to learn it first. Uh, but it is a, certainly a simpler mental model. And that's the part 
the, the thing that is really hard about software development isn't finding like the right piece of snippet to paste, but keeping it all in your head. So if you can reduce the complexity of the code that you're writing and most important, the code that you're maintaining, you can get a lot more done because you don't have to juggle as many balls at the same time. And I think pure functions and immutable data structures, once you've come to terms with them and what they actually mean, and they, they mean that you can dump a load off your shoulders that you didn't know was there. Um, always thinking about the complexities of object graphs and um, timing issues and um, never being quite sure if what you're doing right now will affect something else. Once you can, once you can stop worrying about those things, then you have time to write the closure script code instead of pasting it in from somewhere. That makes a lot of sense. And there's a, I presume there is, you know, we talk about closure versus closure script. I presume there is a, a good overlap between the two there as well in terms of the syntax, ways of working, etc. Yeah. So in that case, if you, it, it gives you an opportunity, I suppose, to use something that is more performant on the back end than something like Node. Because if you were working in closure, then you've got the advantage of, Closure script for the front end and something that's running on the JVM at the back end. Yeah, there's uh, there's certainly a um, a good point in having the same languages on both uh, both the front end and the back end. Um, which I guess JavaScript has moved a little bit closer with the new module systems because in the old days when I used to look at this, Node was nothing like nothing like the front end JavaScript I was writing. <laughs> But, um, but I guess that's become better now. But yeah, you get the, the same uh, advantages uh, using Clojure and ClojureScript. The main good part about Clojure is, um, is how it changes the way you think. Not necessarily the performance you get. It is performant, but it's performant because the JVM is super optimized and very, very smart about how it uh, how it compiles things. And the same goes with JavaScript. So it's just piggybacking on those things. You could get uh, probably better performance uh, writing JavaScript or Java, but uh, you would lose out on the, the simplified coding, which is more important. How, how do you think that compares to other languages that run on the JVM then for, for things like Kotlin or Scala or Groovy or anything like that? I think Kotlin has some very good advantages to get uh, general adoption, uh, which is that you can just change the file ending, and it's uh, and it's a valid Kotlin, and then you can do it. Uh, you can take it in small steps. You can start using uh, just a little bit of Kotlin where it, where it fits, and um, so there's lots of people in Kudamakir, uh, our consultancy, that love Kotlin because it's uh, a better Java, pretty much. And that's where Clojure isn't. It's not a better Java. It's uh, something else entirely. If you're, if you're on Java right now and you think, I, I'd like to have some better tools, I would like to have some better functional programming paradigms available to me, for instance, then you can use like Arrow with Kotlin and it doesn't cost you very much to do so. You probably don't even have to talk to your manager about it. 
whereas if you want to start using Clojure, you'll have to have buy-in from the entire team because it's it's different. But that's also a positive because if you want to really learn functional programming, you will probably be better. You will probably get that done better if you're forced to do so. Uh, let me let me pull. Let me try a parallel to Node. If you remember in Node, there's um, all blocking functions are asynchronous. Like you do file operations, they're asynchronous. Everything's asynchronous because you have like the the event, uh, the vertex model, where you have like the single event. Everything's uh, running on one thread. And in JavaLand, they tried to like build this model uh, called that's the vertex, uh, where they try to get like the same performance characteristics that Node had. The problem was, in Node, all the functions are async by uh, default, right? Um, you, if you want something that's not asynchronous, you have to like specifically call it out. The reverse was true in Java. So if you you would very easily block the event loop by doing something, um, some I/O that you didn't think about, because the default wasn't asynchronous. While in Node, the default is asynchronous. And the same goes for writing functional programs. If you're using Kotlin, this default isn't isn't functional, and you can always get around it. But when I first started to write Clojure, and I read some pieces, and I was finally ready to write my first Clojure program, and I wrote like the first paren, and I had no idea what to do. I was trying to grab for my regular strategies for writing code, and none of them was applicable. So I had to rewire my mind a bit. And I don't think you that will ever happen with Kotlin, at least not particularly quickly, because you're not forced to. So being forced to do it, um, at least when you're a willing participant in the forcing, <laughs> will help you get there a lot quicker, or at all. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Well, I think I'm uh, geared up and ready to do some mind reprogramming. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll be uh, taking a look through um, building out a, a, a zombie, uh, a zombie-based game later on today, and maybe trying to figure out a little bit of closure and whether uh, whether I can finally get some closure in my life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I've used the same yeah, joke. That's yeah, bad, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> well, that, that that feels like a a, a natural. Um... Uh, don't do it. Okay. Right. Well, it, it feels like we're drawing to a close. Let's say so. Uh, <laughs> um, it's been a, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Is there um, is there anything else you wanted to cover or or, uh, or plug even before we close? Oh, I think uh, I think we have. Uh... <laughs> I, I'm not going there either. Uh... <laughs> Thanks for having me on. It was uh, lots of fun. And I think we covered pretty much everything that I want to talk about. Well, it's been a pleasure, and I hope um, I hope our listeners uh, get some closure from this episode. <laughs>